are uh, dismissed to go to children's worship if you would like. And if you don't know me, my name is Josh. I am the pastor for children and students here. Um, pastor Stephen, as was already prayed by John, he is uh, preaching a pastoral charge to Trinity, Bab- or Trinity Church of Loudoun in Brambleton. So he is there today. Uh, we will spend our time in Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 4, 3. So if you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 802, and that's Malachi 3, 13. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. I ask that you would uh, use us or or use your word to shape us, to mold us, help us to understand it, help us to believe it, to live it. So give us ears to hear your word today. As in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So have you ever been in the middle of something and... You, you pause for a second. You take time to assess what's going on and, and if what it's going to cost you is worth the effort. Or maybe you even think it's just not worth the effort, so you want to quit. And in fact, I think we do this quite often. And it's probably even a good thing when we do this, right? Uh, you may be reading a book that just is not that interesting, And you're trying to evaluate, is it really worth me finishing the book? Is it going to be worth the time and effort it takes to put in? Or especially with kids, right? The question that they have in their mind when mom makes cooked cabbage is, is it worth eating mom's boiled cabbage to get dessert tonight? To which the answer is always no. (laughs) Or if you're an adult, is it worth eating this dessert But if I skip it, I can save the calories and the sugar. Or if you're in business, right? You may even have a business startup and you're trying to evaluate. You're two years into it. Is it worth the payoff? All the effort that it's going to take. Is it worth the work? Or in parenting, perhaps. You're trying to pick and choose battles. Is it worth my effort to fight this? To spend time correcting and disciplining. But what about when it comes to God? Do you ever question, is it worth the struggle to fight sin? It seems like a battle that you fight day in and day out. Or you may question, is it worth following God when I have to fight so hard? We're going to see in Israel In verses 13 through 15, their false accusation that it is vain to serve the Lord. And then in 16 through 18, we'll see God tells Israel that just wait, because one day I will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And then the first three verses of chapter 4, we're going to see God will, will give them the motivation for serving him. So if you would, follow along as I read Malachi beginning... In verse 13 of chapter 3. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit 
of our keeping his charge and of our walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers. Not only they, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when in all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So we see here Israel continuing to complain. We've seen this throughout the whole book of Malachi. And today their complaint is it's vain, it's worthless to serve God. So they're asking the question, God, is there really any benefit? Is there really any payoff to serving and worshiping you? To which I would want to say, yes, of course. There's lots of benefits. In fact, there's benefits here and now in this life today. Right? We have, through Christ, we can have peace with God. We can have intimacy with God. We have forgiveness of sins. And you could go on and on and on about the benefits that we have today by serving and worshiping God. But that's not what he tells the people. That's not how he answers their accusation. He says, well, there is a payout. There is a benefit so great that you'll go out leaping like calves from a stall. My coming will bring such joy that you're going to want to explode with happiness. And so Israel fails to see their sin. They fail to see over and over and over their, their sin. They fail today in this passage to see that their God is actually themselves. They're, they're failing to submit to him. And they're constantly comparing themselves and their circumstances with the people around them, which causes them great bitterness, which is what they do in verses 13 through 15 with this false charge. Look at it again with me in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Their accusation is hard against the Lord. 
They say it's vain to serve him. It's worthless to serve God. It does us absolutely no good is what they're saying. So Israel concludes that, that it does no good at all to be righteous, to keep God's charge and to walk before him as in mourning. Right? Israel arrogantly claims and comes to the conclusion that God, we're righteous and there's no payout. It does us absolutely no good. Therefore, it is vain for us to serve you. And look at their, their accusation. There's two parts to it. Their false charge first says that the arrogant are blessed and the evildoers prosper. Right? They're saying there's absolutely no reward for us to follow you. So why should we be following you? Right? If, if you're taking a test, if you know you're a student and you have a test coming up on Friday, if you were to know or, or, or you're studying for the test and you're thinking, well, it doesn't matter if I study. It doesn't matter if I get the questions right. As long as I show up and sign my name on the paper, I get an A. What's the use in studying? Whether I study 20 hours and prep for the exam or I just show up and write my name on it. I get the same reward. I get an A. What's the use? Israel, I think, has that same attitude. It, is, it does not prosper us at all to follow God, to serve God. And then the second part of their accusation is, they say evildoers test God, they put him to the test, and they escape. So the first part is, there's no benefit to us to follow God. And then the second part is, you, you actually, God, don't even punish the wicked. So if there's no punishment for rebelling against God, then why submit to him? Why should I die to self and follow God? Right, we, we tend to motivate our kids in this way, we want to reward good behavior. We want to discipline and punish bad behavior. So Israel's thinking the same thing. Like, God, I want blessings, but I see the arrogant and the evildoers prospering. And they do all these things, put, putting you to the test, and there's no punishment at all. Well, what they failed to do is see that they offer faithless worship. So they're right. They have no payout coming so long as they continue to offer faithless worship to God. One commentator says it this way, serving God as these people were doing was pointless. So-called good works that do not arise from genuine faith and gratitude to God are simply hot checks drawn on an empty bank account. They may provide a temporary sense of self-satisfaction, but God recognizes their true value, and it's zero. God could see their service, their worship of him was faithless. It was simply just to get something from him. And so while they worship him, it may have provided a temporary sense of satisfaction, it may have appeased their minds and appeased their conscience. 
But there's no blessing coming from that. They're just using Jesus. They're using God to get what they want. They're using God for a reward. Is that so far different? Are they so different from us? We do things for rewards, right? You work, not just to throw away your time, but you work for a reward, your paycheck. You might even work out. You put yourself through physical pain. What for? For a reward. So that maybe you can have ice cream at the end of the night. Enjoy the spoils of your hard labors. Students, you may study for the reward of getting a good grade. But why do we serve Jesus? Why do we worship God? Is it what Israel sought, that they sought material blessings? Right? We worship Christ. We have faith in Christ. We follow Christ for a reward. But if we're just using him, for material blessings, for safety and for comfort, then he's not actually our God. If you use God, if you claim to sit through a religious service like this and you show up to appease your mind and and hopefully buy God's favor, you're just using him. Your idol is actually self. You're not worshiping him for who he is. But if you're worshiping him and following Christ for a reward, I think that's good. But what reward are you seeking? Are you seeking Christ? Is he the one, the treasure that you long for? Because if so, then that reward is far, is well worth all your labors to follow Christ faithfully. Israel is continuously comparing themselves and their circumstances to other nations around them, which leads them to complain in this false accusation that it's vain to serve God. And so God says to them, I'm going to make a distinction between you. I'm going to make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the and one who does not serve him. So if you've been here for any of the other sermons throughout Malachi, each of these, these sermons that we've looked at, there's been uh, an accusation that the people have made against God. And then God responds. But this is the first time that we see that there's at least a small remnant within the nation that actually is devoted to him, that actually loves him and worships him. And it's here that we see what what happens. It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Right? So for God's people, 
He pays attention. He hears them who fear him. And so I hope that that's a comfort to you. If you're God's child, he hears you. And in a day where Facebook posts and Twitter feeds, news feeds last for maybe a few hours or a day or so, we're so trained, I think, by our culture to think that our words are just temporary. They only last but a f- for a few minutes while people notice them. But that's not what happens here. It says God actually notices the words of his people for eternity. So when you get mad and words spew out of your mouth that are ugly and hurtful, God hears. But when good, loving, and encouraging words, speaking about who our God is, when we speak to others about him, God hears. And think about that. That's astounding, right? We pray to God and we generally expect him to hear us because we're speaking to him. But this passage even shows us it goes further than just when we pray, God hears us and we have his attention. But when we speak to one another, right? The people here spoke with one another and God heard them. So I want to remind you, church, God hears you. He pays attention to you. Even when we scatter today from this gathering, right? We may go home and have a dinner with our family or we may go to the restaurant and eat or you may go back to your campus and you are talking with others. God hears you. That even is, I think, is astounding because not only does God hear us when we talk of him, but he hears all of us in our individual conversations when we're speaking to one another. God hears us. He hears when your speech is marked with tenderness and gentleness and grace and mercy. When you're building others up with your words, God pays attention. It says here, Malachi, in Malachi, that God even writes your words in a book of remembrance. Back in the Near East at this time, kings would record things that happen. We see this in Ezra 4.15 about this book of records or in Esther chapter 2. If you remember what Mordecai does and spares the life of the king by overhearing a conversation and then letting the king know, right? What happens? The king says, make a record that, that this may be remembered, that it, a record is made in this book of the annals in the presence of the king. And so this book of remembrance is God's way of saying, him affirming, it's not only that it, do I know what you said, but I want to remember and I want to act on that thing that I remember. I want to reward those who fear and honor me. And I think this book of remembrance is more than just some medical, metaphorical way of God saying, I'm going to remember and reward what you, you do and say. Because over and over in scriptures, we see other times of books of record. We see what's called a book of life in Psalm chapter 69. 
We see a book of life mentioned in Philippians 4.3. We also see a book of life mentioned five different times in Revelation. Right, so I wonder if this book of remembrance, maybe perhaps it's also this book of life that's mentioned especially in Revelation 13 and 17, where it says this book of life, in it is written names from before the foundation of the world, before creation. So think about that. This book of remembrance, perhaps this book of life, in it are God's children's names written even before he ever says, let there be light. Before land is created and people are formed. So I could even see this book of remembrance even now as God observes his people saying to the scribe, writing these things down in the book saying, flip to page 1100. Do you see Blakiki written in there? Flip to page 4,500,000. Do you see Mitchell and Newtsman written in there? Flip to page 8,790,000. Do you see Zilke written in there? As if you could even hear God saying, may a record be made known. As they encouraged their faith family, as they poured their life into their community group. May a record be known that they fear me. God sees and hears his people. And he says in verses 17 and 18 that this distinction between the wicked and the righteous is a future distinction. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. When I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. There's a promised distinction. This distinction will happen when Christ comes again one day. It's a distinction between those who are righteous those who are the true Israel of faith and those who are wicked, those who rebel, those who hate God, those who even serve God with religious ritual and it's just a mere formality. And so I ask you the question now, do you want to be heard by God? Do you want to be his treasured possession? Do you want him to spare judgment and to count you as righteous? I hope you would say yes. To which I would say, based on God's word here, he would say, serve me with a heart fully devoted. Submit yourself to me. And if you want to be his treasured possession, make him the treasure, the delight of your heart. This distinction is based on those who serve him with a heart that loves him. So do you obey and do you serve out of a deep affection and a deep love for Christ? Or do you just merely use him? Do you use him and obey him for his blessings, for a comfort in this life? Or are you serving him because you love and you cherish him? 
Or are you serving him, expecting something from him in return, like he owes you comfort and ease in this life? Because if so, the Lord says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that's not the motivation to serve me. So would you read with me, beginning in verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when, the, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under, your, under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So this motivation to serve the Lord, he's saying this is a future coming when Christ comes and it's unavoidable, right? Verse one, it says, for behold, that is, Everybody pause, take notice, because it's imminent. You cannot stop it. It's coming. And it says two different times, the day is coming. You can't deny it. In a Pew Research report that came out in April of this year, it said that six in 10 Americans believe that there is a God or a higher power that will someday judge all people, which means four out of 10 would say there is no future judgment, that there is no future reckoning before our God. And so despite what proud and arrogant Americans think, there will be a great day of judgment. God's word says all the arrogant, all evildoers will suffer his judgment. So despite public opinion in Israel at the time, God lets them know there is coming a day when the wicked will never escape his judgment. Despite the arrogant and wicked people in America, there is a coming day of judgment to which all of us answer to God. And so the question is, I think that we see in the, these remaining verses is, is this day going to be a terrible day for you? Or will this day be a wonderful day for you? Right? When some of you who watch football, if you watch the Virginia Tech UVA football game, it's terrible or it's wonderful. And almost always, it's always terrible for Cavalier fans. And if you're a UT Knoxville fan, it's almost always terrible for you while Nick Saban is the coach for Alabama whenever they play. And Alabama rejoices because they've got an easy team coming up. And the Hokies rejoice because it's going to be a wonderful day. And the same thing, the question is for us. Will this coming of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, will it be to you like a burning oven, like a furnace? Are you one of these arrogant, these evildoers who will be like stubble, like dry pine needles, kindling, ready and waiting to be set ablaze by God and his judgment? 
The oven of God's wrath is this payment that they deserve. God's judgment, it even says here, will be complete, right? It says, it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's going to be a complete and utter destruction. It's going to be real. And so then the question I think that we have to ask is, well, how do we define wicked? Is it by human standards? Is it by saying, well, anybody who's, you know, committed murder or does unjust and evil things to children, those are the wicked? Or is it by God's standard? Well, looking at this passage, God's the one who's doing the judging. So I would say we'd probably best to stick with God's judgment and God's standard. And his standard is perfection to which none of us measure up. Not a single one of us can say I've been perfect. I've always obeyed God and his commands. I've always loved him and never rebelled against him. And so the question now I think is how do we escape his judgment. Because here it, it gives us this warning. And I think if you're here today without Christ, you should even hear this as a warning and also a call to repent because Christ has not yet come. So it is not too late to bow a knee to King Jesus. You can call upon him, cry out for his mercy. You can you can reverse what Israel says here that it's vain to serve God and see that there is eternal and everlasting joy and reward in Christ if you would bow a knee. That if you would bow to Christ, you'd be covered in his righteousness and that instead of you being the occupant of the throne on your, in your heart, that Christ would rule you. That God would satisfy you and so this warning today, yes, it is a very real time of judgment. Hell is coming for those who remain in their sin. But if you would believe in Christ, there is time to repent today. So that Christ's second coming would not be to you terrible, but that it might be joyful, that it might be wonderful because Christ has died. He has received the oven of God's wrath that you deserve. He has taken that upon himself so that when he does come, it's not a terrible day for you, but it's a wonderful day for you. We see this wonderful day is described as, as the son of righteousness coming, right? Like the sun after the rain, when the clouds part and the sun comes through, or like a cloudless morning when we see the sunrise. It brings joy. It brings happiness. This is what the coming of Christ will be like. It'll be bringing joy to us like calves leaping from a stall. So if you're feeling hurt and wounded or downcast, may your sorrow come to an end when the sun rises, when Christ comes again. 
But we also see this second coming of the Lord will, be, will, will bring vindication. Right? Verse 3, it says, You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. So it's going to be a day where God brings vindication for his people. So if you've been longing for justice and you feel like it just isn't happening, when Christ comes again, there will be a day where he brings vindication and he brings justice. So this should be for all believers, I think, an encouragement, one for our evangelism. That Christ's coming should encourage us to tell others about Christ because he has yet to come, which means there are still some to be saved. There are still some to know him, to be freed from the destruction that they're due if they are found without Christ. And so let us be motivated to proclaim him. And I think something we must remember also in our telling people about Jesus, we must tell them about Christ's death and his resurrection. Otherwise, it's not the gospel. But I think also this passage reminds us we must also warn. Because if there's no destruction and judgment coming for those without Jesus, then do they have a need for him? So we must hear this passage. When we warn others about Christ and bowing a knee, we also have to warn there's judgment if you're without him. But also I think if you are a believer, this passage gives you great motivation to continue living for Jesus. Your worship of him, your serving him is not in vain because the reward you get, the motivation for your living today is not an earthly blessing, but you get the reward of Christ. You gain the prize of being with the object that has held your affection for your entire life. So instead of receiving destruction of God, you as a believer gain the favor of God. Instead of losing everything, we gain everything. Because when he comes again, that's when we're with him. So I want you to listen to this today. Serving God in sincere faith is never worthless. It's not in vain. So don't grow weary. Don't look at other circumstances and wish that you had their blessing, their material possessions. Be satisfied with Christ. Persevere in Christ. And when he comes, he will, like John read, he will distinguish between the wheat and the weeds. He will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. When Christ comes again, you will see and have the object of your faith. You'll be with him. You'll experience everlasting joy that can never be squelched. You will be rewarded with Christ. Would you bow your heads and pray with me now? Father, we thank you for today. We ask that your word would be on our minds, even as we go from here today. Perhaps some of us may go to a restaurant to have lunch. Would you 
put on our minds your word, that we would rejoice in the reward of being your children and having Christ, would you also help us to even think about others? Perhaps we can even just introduce Christ to our waiter or waitress by asking them, how can we pray for you? Would you be with us? Would you help us as your people to persevere in faith, trusting that it's never in vain that we worship and that we serve you. As in Christ's name we pray, amen.